from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. and Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for November the 24th, 2019. The last Sunday for the month of November as we head into Thanksgiving. Welcome to our weekly look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So time to grab that Sunday paper, get that hot cup of coffee, and we'll do our best to get your holiday week off to a great start. Holiday week, how about it? Holiday week it is, and um, let's see now. Uh... 31 days left until Christmas? (laughs) 31 shopping days? 30 days left. Okay, so... Today is the 24th. So we just had the uh, Lights Festival on Michigan Avenue yesterday. Yeah, I just saw uh, that uh, on uh, WGN just a moment ago. It looked beautiful. Uh, It was a madhouse downtown. It was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it usually is for something like that. It really was. It really was. And the weather, weather, even though it was cold and rather cloudy, it wasn't snowing or raining, so... No, no, and... uh, uh, and it, I mean, it was fairly temperate. There, there was a little windy, but uh, but yeah, tons of people were downtown sure. yesterday. Sure. Just, and I'm not feeling it. I'm sorry. Everything's moving so fast. You know, it, I, Halloween was a blip, and <laughs> here comes here comes Thanksgiving, and that'll be over before you know it. Yeah, and I, I mean now I. I am posting up on the Facebook the annual uh, posting of the uh, jazzed-up green bean casserole Oh, yes, that will fit very well with any Thanksgiving dinner. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, trying a variation this year is a crockpot recipe, but instead of the traditional French-fried onions on top, yes, uh, they have now have French-fried jalapenos. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you're going to jazz up the green bean casserole, give it a little pizzazz. That'll give it too. some spice. I mean, I, it sounds good, doesn't it? It does sound good. Yes, and because uh, I mean, the French fried onions don't really, you know, it's they don't even really taste like onions. They really don't. And sometimes there's almost no flavor to, depending on how they were made or how long they've been out. Right. You know, it's more like a texture. It, thing. It's more of a texture thing. Yes, but with the jalapenos. You will have a uh, little pizzazz to that. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, something something different this year. Um, you what? You normally go out for Thanksgiving, uh, but uh, you and your dad go visit uh, restaurants around the area. Yeah, uh, we we have. And a week or two ago, uh, Dad was telling me about uh, all of the uh, good things that they're going to be offering uh, in the uh, dining area where he lives now. And uh, looked at the menu, and it looked pretty good. So I said, you know, I have to work in the morning. You have a busy week this we week. We have a very busy week this week, which is typical, you know, for us for a holiday, uh, getting into the holidays. But I said, you know, since I am working and working a lot, if they're offering this and the food is good, let's let's just stay here. 
avoid you know the restaurants where where we've been characteristically uh, which all have been good by the way but sometimes they can be on the crowded side right and uh you know avoid that and avoid uh well you know saving some money let's face it uh you know eating out can uh, cost uh, a lot can run up a pretty quick bill even on Thanksgiving. So uh, we have just decided that we're going to stay in, lay low. Uh, Dad has a nice group of friends, and so that's what we're going to do Thanksgiving day, uh, afternoon. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And then he got... Looking got forward to it. All kinds of football and stuff to watch. Oh, right, right. And uh, speaking of football, a lot of college games we were watching yesterday, and uh, Dad being a Michigan guy, next week is the big week for Michigan and Ohio State. Yeah, and uh, Ohio State remains undefeated. And is uh, vying with LSU for the uh, number one spot. Yeah. Uh, and I still think LSU is uh, is the number one team right now. But uh, we'll be uh, talking to Andy in just a couple of minutes about some sports. But, uh, you know, I... Uh, the weather looks pretty decent for this week. Really, uh, we're, we're back into a normal, above-normal range. Uh, temperatures today in the mid-40s. What a beautiful sunrise we've had here. Yes. And so we're looking already now. It's above freezing midway and uh, another uh, portion. Gary, Indiana, 34. Uh, 34 also in Oak Lawn. 32 officially at O'Hare. But highs in the mid-40s uh, today, tomorrow, and Tuesday even. So we're looking at normal or above normal temps for the end of November. Although a little bit of, uh, I think, weather starting to come in on Some rain. Tuesday. Yeah, rain being the word there simply because the temperatures are going to be in the 40s. But uh, not real sure how heavy that storm will be. We'll probably hear from Mike Hammernick later on uh, on Dean's show today. So we'll, f- we'll find out more about what the rain, what that is in store for us. That, and I'm curious, too, because the Weather Service was saying on Wednesday, Day very windy uh, with gusts up to 45 miles an hour. Yeah. And even kind of posting warnings already for uh, the Indiana Lakeshore. Well, there would be warnings uh, uh, out that way because those winds, especially if it's coming straight down the lake, <laughs> having yes. having stood uh, close to the lakeshore uh, in northwest Indiana a number of times, it will cut right through you. <laughs> oh, yeah. so Like nothing flat. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But uh, overall, partly cloudy skies uh, today and tomorrow. Highs in the 40s and looking uh, into the 40 range, uh, lower 40s. Uh, Pretty much throughout the week this week. Sounds like a great forecast. Thanks, Dave. You bet. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Time to check in with Andy on sports. And uh, I'm going to throw one at you. All right. Okay. So uh, yesterday, uh, my Willowbrook high school warriors uh came up short to mount carmel in the 7a uh, semifinals out in villa park and uh it was the first time that uh, willowbrook had been in the semifinals since 1975 Hmm. and our our good friend joe brand was out uh, doing the game for comcast on the sidelines and he was tweeting about something so i had to let him know that in 1975, I was the uh, sports writer for uh, Willowbrook High School covering 
1975 game. And his rejoinder back was that he was going to interview Tom Doman, who was a great player for Willowbrook, in the next quarter. I said, oh, great, great guy. But it's like, wow, that's a long time ago. And But, uh, I mean, all respect to Mount Carmel. Uh, uh, it's going to be a great uh, state final in 7A. But uh, all kinds of uh, football going on. It's hard to believe season's wrapping up. I know. And, you know, especially with the fact that, uh, you know, it's gotten a little chillier out. And, uh, yeah, I guess you can expect it. But you said uh, Mount Carmel, Class 7A, will take on uh, Nazareth Academy of LaGrange Park. That'll be the, uh, the 7A matchup uh, coming up, I believe, next week. I uh, I remember, uh, <laughs> this is in latter years, mm-hmm. uh, I had to uh, fill in when I was at UPI to cover uh, the uh, football uh, championship, which was then down at Illinois State, down in Bloomington Normal. And I always remarked about how it was so interesting when you'd see these small schools play uh, that they would, at halftime, half the team would switch into band gear (laughs) (laughs) i mean they got no rest and i where i was sitting in the press box uh at the stadium was right next to one of the radio booths so i could kind of hear uh hear some of the radio call and again it was class 1a and the radio uh play-by-play was basically uh, Number eleven throws the ball to number seventy-two, <laughs> and 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 it you know, and I'm kind of going, well, but then I realized back then their weekly paper had the lineups of both teams, and you had people that you know couldn't make the trip to Bloomington were sitting there looking at that back page, you know, following along the the, the play-by-play with by number. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a play-by-play uh, man's worst nightmare is when you don't know the names and you just know the number. Uh, but I guess in that case, it uh, it's okay. I made some sense. Yeah, then. it made some sense. But so uh, I think LSU still holds number one. I would agree. I would think that's the case. I mean, uh, you know, Ohio State's making a good case for uh, for themselves to be in the uh, obviously in the in the top four picture, uh, depending on what happens next week against Michigan. But uh, you know, LSU rolled again yesterday. The only team that uh, really uh, was completely upset was number six, Oregon. Uh, losing to uh, Herm Edwards in Arizona State yesterday in in uh, Tempe, thirty one twenty eight. So that'll that'll topple things a little bit there in the in the top ten at least in that college football playoff poll in the mix. But uh, yeah, but I don't think it'll, it won't do anything to the top four. And that's that's still the likelies. Yeah, I mean because you look at Alabama and they they suffered that huge loss with uh, Tungavailoa uh, gone or Tungavailoa. Thank you. Uh, easy for you to yeah. say. Uh, hello, good morning. Uh, he's out, but they, they had an easy time with their backup against Western Carolina yesterday. I, I don't know how much weight that will hold. Obviously, you're playing a team that's, uh, you know, not uh, not quite uh, up to your standards there. Georgia wins yesterday. Uh, of course, Ohio State beat Penn State yesterday. LSU continue to uh, roll in one. And uh, everybody else inside the top ten uh, was win- uh, won yesterday, except for Oregon and Penn State. So... We'll just watch as this continues along. We start moving into, don't we start moving into conference? uh, Yeah, conference championships. Yeah, Yeah, that'll be uh, the week after next, I believe, because uh, Ohio State plays Michigan. I know the Iron Bowl is next week with uh, Alabama and Auburn. So there's uh, a lot of the rivalries that are still going on. Illinois and uh, Northwestern will play next week in Champaign. 
So there's uh, a little bit to be decided yet in the regular season. And uh, then, of course, it's conference championships. And then all those teams that are bowl eligible, including the Illini, right. will kind of sweat it out and wait and see where they're invited to go play uh, in, uh, in the bowls. Tough loss for the Blackhawks last night. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I watched the entire game, uh, including the shootout yesterday. So did I. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, I'm not exactly sure, again, and I know Jonathan Taze mentioned this after the game, and he is not an excuse maker, and I'm not an excuse maker either. But I'm wondering in the third period and the overtime and the, what, what the officials on the ice were actually watching. Were they watching the game that was in front of them, or were they watching something else on TV? Yeah, what was that about? It was awful. Uh, now listen, the, the goal that uh, that Strom tipped in was a high stick. That that's that, correct. That, you, you have to wipe that one off the board. So if you didn't if you didn't hear it, uh, there were two goals that were uh, basically disallowed because of a, of a replay. The other one was that scrum in front of Hudobin, and you really couldn't tell whether or not Andrew Shaw was able to poke that third or fourth chance through the five hole because of the way that Hudobin fell. Right. But half his body was in the net. Correct. That's so what I mean. So <laughs> if the puck is underneath his backside, he's in the net. Now, I understand. Video replay, you have to have conclusive evidence. The, go- the call on the ice was no goal. If the call on the ice had been goal, it would have been upheld because you, you right. didn't have any disputed uh, video to show that. But uh, And then the, the, the one that really bothered me the most was the, the too many men on the ice call right. in overtime. Now, you might think to yourself, all right, well, it's no big deal. They kill penalties all the time, but it's only a five-minute session, and it happened with just over two minutes to go. So basically, you're on your heels trying to defend for the rest of the overtime rather than trying to go and, and win the game. Yeah, that's exactly what I was watching is you're basically closing out overtime uh, shorthanded right. uh, and, and praying to get into a shootout. Exactly, and that's and then you know when you have Robin Leonard, who's admittedly uh, not uh, all that great in the shootouts, and for whatever reason, he's, he's the John Lester to first base yeah, guy I'm when it comes you. to shootouts. He's, <laughs> and you know uh, we're going to hear from him coming up at eight, but he's he's talking a little bit about the speed because on a breakaway, guys are trying to break breakneck there. You know they're they're not slowing down. They're in a race. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to out uh, out uh, duel a defender and put the puck in the net, but. This is the, you know the situation. I think that Patrick Kane kind of responsible for this, with the the speed up and then slow down, but still move. So you're still considered moving uh, in the shootout, and it's a whole different animal because these guys are going are trying different things. They're trying to deke uh, forehand, backhand. They're trying to go up. They're trying to go down. I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to do for a goalie, uh, but he is among the worst in the league over the course of his career in shootouts. Yeah, it uh, it it's. It's like when they first started shootouts. I thought it was a great concept because you know we talked last week about the rarity of penalty shots, right. and so it was a great concept. But now it, it's you know it's, I'm not sure about the athletic athleticism of it. Yeah, you know what needs to happen, and Jonathan Taves kind of alluded to this yesterday after the game. Overtime needs to go to ten minutes because if you're going to play three on three, some, somebody usually wins in the first right. couple of minutes of a three on three, depending on. What happens, especially if you win the draw to open things up, your chances increase exponentially to, to win the game because you've got the puck and you're you're able to, to take it back out of your zone, take it back in, and uh, you only have two other guys you have to worry about staying on sides, and then there's a defenseman back, so of course you have protection going the other way. You know, if if that game would have been able to continue, especially after the horrible penalty call, a winner would have been decided. I just I'm I'm old school, I guess. I, th- I thought ties in the NHL were good for about 80 years, and then you know the attention span of everybody kind of uh, went to the nanosecond, and you have to have a winner. 
Right. Um, you know, it was okay in hockey for a long time. I just don't. I don't like the. I don't like the shootout. I just don't like it's, it. To me, it's like an NBA game is tied at the at uh, after four quarters. You play overtime. And there's still no winner, and you do a three point shooting contest. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, I mean, it's 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 one of those kind of things where uh, the the skill set does not get shown because you're just basically it's it's a penalty shot every time. I mean, and you're supposed to score if you're if you're a guy if you're a forward or a defenseman, you're supposed to score on those. I, I think it's a great skills event at the All Star game, exactly. But after that, it's yeah. Not and I'm not much. just saying this because they lost yesterday. I've been saying this for a while that I I do not like the shootout. I never have. And I probably never will because I just think it's it's just ridiculous to go sixty five minutes of playing your your rear end off and then all of a sudden right. it's a skills competition in that respect and to be rewarded for all of that time that you've played out on the ice exactly yeah. well I mean they did had a good showing they I, did I, I know that that's not uh, of much consolation they did get a point uh, against a very red hot team and the stars are ten oh and one of their last eleven and they won six straight so. Uh, the, the Hawks will get a little chance to exact some revenge coming up on Tuesday night. Same two teams at the United Center. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, Bears, <laughs> Bears, Bears. Yeah, well, the listen, Bears. Listen, this is this is a must win. This is a should win. Uh, but just because we say must win and should win doesn't mean they will win. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Trubisky is expected to start. All of a sudden, that hip injury went away uh, after uh, it looked so bad in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, but he went through practice all week. Is not even on the injured report, so he'll he'll likely start. Uh, the Giants are abysmal. This is a two and eight team that can't get much going offensively. Have one of the worst defenses in the league, and I mean it sets up. It's a recipe for a, a big offensive showing by the Bears. But we know how that goes. Uh, the Bears struggled against a, a second string quarterback with the with the Lions, and uh, they struggled with a team that was struggling to score a little bit in the Rams last week. So. Uh, it doesn't uh, necessarily mean it. Uh, I just think this Giants team is a little uninterested uh, at two and eight, with uh, only a few games left to play for them to play out the string. So, uh, I, you know, I think the Bears could get this one today. Well, that's Andy. He's here with the latest sports. Dave's here to keep us up to date on all the news. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. You can also text us at 312-981-7200. Engineer Bob is already looking for the drumstick. Remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com, and you can get our podcast at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. We're going to take a break. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me in studio is State Senator Christina Castro, Democrat from Elgin, and State Representative Ann Williams, Democrat from Chicago. They are respectively the Senate and House sponsors of what's known as the Clean Energy Jobs Act. This was not an act yet, because the legislature did not take up the issue uh, during the fall veto session. But that hasn't stopped the work to get this uh, get this going. Uh, Senator, maybe you could start out first and just give us the overview here of what is this bill. So the Clean Energy Jobs Act really encompasses a lot of different things. One, it it, it tries to get us to um, zero percent to by 2050 um as far as uh emissions as well as you're talking about equity and jobs you know we have a lot of um 
communities of color and being a woman of color who don't have an opportunity to not only partake in renewable energy, whether it's for their own homes, to be entrepreneurs in this industry, and also to train jobs. So one of the things that when you look at when you look at climate change and the environment, it pretty much hurts our communities the most. Uh, and a lot of folks just don't understand how their environment impacts them. Um, so that's a couple of the little bit of the tidbits that we're working on. Um, and, you know, we're you know trying to address a lot of different things, too. You know, you have a lot of communities downstate when you're talking about nuclear plants that are about to close. We have to start looking at how we're going to train that workforce. Well, plus uh, you have the, the issue of coal and, and those communities that have been just going through wrenching time periods, Representative. Yeah, you're right, Rick. Uh, we've had we've seen four uh, coal plant closures in Illinois within the past six months. And these are closures that have been driven by market forces. It's not even about our push to renewables. So uh, what Christina's point is, is that while these coal plants close, they leave in their wake not only devastation in terms of economics for the communities where they're located, they also leave literally piles of uh, waste, coal ash specifically, that has to be addressed. So what we're trying to do in the Clean Energy Jobs Act is prepare for these closures, do them responsibly, and ensure that the communities where they are left are not left behind. Now, obviously, there has been uh, some issues involving Commonwealth Edison and federal investigation, including uh, involving members of the General Assembly, which kind of made this a no one wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole kind of issue but there are some important timing issues coming up i mean i guess the trump administration is is looking at how capacity market capacity uh funding issues are done and and we're we could get slammed you're absolutely right one of our primary roles as state legislators uh, seems to have been uh, evolving to become fighting back against some of the dangerous policies of the Trump administration. And nowhere is that more clear than the issue of energy. Uh, right now, there's a real sense of urgency in Illinois to move forward with this bill because what's happening on the federal level, as you outlined, is the Trump administration is subsidizing fossil fuels to a uh, enormous degree, penalizing states like Illinois that want to move forward with renewable energy development. So one of the things our bill would do would be to reframe how energy is procured in Illinois so we can favor renewable and clean energy sources. And how do we do that? I think one of the things that I want to point out also to add to your uh, point is this this bill is very comprehensive. Um, on top of the fact that it was uh, worked on with the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition. So while I understand your concern to uh, when you talk about the utilities, utilities do not uh, play a role in the writing or the creation of this bill. And, the, and we're, we have not had conversations um, given everything that's going mm-hmm. on. Uh, we plan on moving it forward. We're having discussions with the governor's office, and we're looking to move it in the spring. Um, to deal with a lot of those things, you know, by reforming the ca- capacity market will save consumers money and protect the environment, especially if that FERC decision is what um, you're referring to uh, comes because if the FERC decision comes, it will almost automatically raise uh, prices for our consumers. So what the bill would do uh, would take this market under state control so that we can reduce payments to uh, dirty, expensive coal plants and instead invest 
uh, part of uh, the bill that is cheaper, invest in renewable energy. And so that's what we're trying to do. Is, as Ann was saying, we're trying to combat that by taking it on as a, from a state perspective. From a state perspective. I mean, because it's my understanding that, you know, this could be the largest electrical rate increase uh, in Illinois history yeah. under under those federal standards. Yes, if we don't if we don't act it certainly will be. And regarding the utility issue that you mentioned, historically it is true that the utilities have led conversations on energy, but that tide is turning for a lot of reasons. A lot of voters and constituents are focusing on issues like climate change, they're concerned about public health impacts of pollution. So this is really a driving issue and I feel strongly that we are going to be leading the conversation. It's not about the utilities. The utilities' needs are not my concern, moving this bill forward. So we are focused on an environmentally uh, friendly, uh, pro-renewable piece of energy legislation, and we're uh, committed to making that happen in the spring. So what, what are the obstacles that remain? Well, I would say to start, as Christina mentioned, this is a hugely complicated and comprehensive issue. So we are looking to do a lot of things in one package. There are pretty much three goals in addition to the equity piece Mm -hmm. that Christina outlined. Um, One of the goals is to eliminate the utilization of fossil fuel Mm -hmm. producing power plants, number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, our goal is to uh, go to 100% renewable energy by 2050. And finally, this is a piece that kind of ties in, we want to utilize what's called beneficial electrification, which basically means let's find ways to electrify the transportation sector. Uh, recently, it's come out that the biggest contributor to climate damage and climate change is the transportation sector. So this bill would uh, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels for powering those um, electric vehicles, change uh, mass transit uh, options, rideshare options to um, electric vehicles, and provide um opportunities for municipalities to convert their fleets as well. So it's a very, very complex and comprehensive bill, and it takes work to get it done. Now, I mean, certainly from the transit aspect, I mean, I understand, you know, the goal of, of clean energy, but what where, where, what about the finances? What about the financial issues for, you know, converting something like the, the CTA to, to total electrification? Where, where's the money come from? Well, I think this entire bill is based on the premise that if we reduce the way we procure energy by revamping how we use our capacity market, mm-hmm. by the time we throw in the uh, extensive energy efficiency measures, we're going to end up benefiting consumers across the board. Uh, there's a, a line out there that the cheapest energy out there is the energy you don't use. And if we reduce our usage, if we uh, pro prefer and prioritize the utilization of renewables rather than the fossil fuel preference that exists now, we will end up saving money. And those savings, in part, can go to funding those important components that you mentioned. I know some people are already, and and you, you, as legislators, probably got complaints, too, about people with electric cars that got got the big rate charge as part of the uh, the infrastructure package, and you know, there was a there's a balance there is is what it comes down to. And yes, there was a period of incentivizing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're using the same infrastructure that is a basically pay as you go with the gasoline tax, and that you know they're not paying the gas tax; they're they're charging their vehicles, but there is a price to pay. 
Yeah, I think it was just bringing equity for those that actually um, either have hybrid vehicles or have just gas-powered vehicles. It was that um, they are using the infrastructure, they are using our roads, our tollways, and it, it is putting wear and tear. So when you're talking about rebuilding and investing and a lot of what we needed and passing that $45 billion infrastructure plan, which is much needed. I mean, it is much needed. I can tell you back in Elgin, there are bridges that really, and roads that just need an overhaul that um, it was just a part of being equitable. And uh, because they don't use gas and, and they are using the road, we've, we were trying to come up with a balance that um, those that have electric vehicles would also contribute to that because they are using our roads and highways as well. And it was not the $1,000 that someone once proposed. That- <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> we're speaking with State Senator Christina Castro, Democrat from Elgin, State Representative Ann Williams, Democrat from Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me here in the WGN Skyline studio is Democratic State Representative Ann Williams from Chicago and Democratic State Senator Christina Castro from Elgin. We're talking about the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which is uh, still under development in Springfield, uh, but got a couple of texts. Is the bottom line, is this going to cost me more money? Uh, one of the texters says, I am already can barely pay for my electrical bill now. No, I get it. We're pragmat- pragmatically approaching this, and we recognize keeping uh, consumers from getting a rate increase must be at the top of the agenda. And that's why we're structuring the bill, the complicated uh, bill, to ensure that that doesn't happen. Right now in Illinois, we are paying um, for a premium because the federal government is subsidizing the fossil fuel plants, and that's because of how the capacity market works. What we want to do in the Clean Energy Jobs Act is ensure that the capacity market is run through Illinois and prioritizes Illinois energy sources. Right now, our energy sources include nuclear at the top of the list, coal, and then uh, finally, we have our um, uh, renewable energy sources are at the bottom of the pile. We want to ramp up the renewable energy sources and quit subsidizing the dirty coal, which is what's happening on the federal level. Between that and our uh, efforts on energy efficiency, we'll be significantly lowering the need to utilize the same amount of energy we're utilizing now, and that will result in savings. So that's that's the out goal. That's the top of the agenda. Um, and so... Uh, off the air, you said that uh, it's a matter now of, of getting working groups together and structuring structuring a very complicated complicated bill. Yeah, I think one of the things we, we've we've had conversations with the governor's office, and we are looking to start. You know, obviously, session starts at the end of January for us, and having those meetings and to discuss the path forward, how we're going to work on the bill, and we'll come up with obviously something comprehensive that. Obviously, addresses a lot of things, but the biggest thing is, like as Ann was saying, by reforming the capacity market, you save consumers money and create a level playing field for renewable energy. Illinois can use those savings to invest in new renewable uh, development, energy efficiency, demand response, and energy storage, reinvesting some of the subsidies that now go to coal and gas plants to our cleaner future. And those who are low income will be able to access that. I think that's the biggest thing when you talk about equity is you have a lot of low income com- low income communities who cannot access this right now. And that is one of the things that I think is the biggest pillar is getting more access for that. So that way people can see a benefit at home and of relying on expensive comment. And and Rick, we are really 
really excited uh, about conversations we've had with the governor's office. He's been committed since day one to addressing climate change on the state level. So I think that's going to really bode well for our chances of passage and having a, a successful session for clean energy. I want to switch gears here in the couple of minutes we have left and uh, move into the political arena here. Uh, my colleague at the Chicago Tribune, Ray Long, uh, recently uh, wrote a piece involving how a uh, longtime uh, ComEd lobbyist and the perhaps closest friend to House Speaker Michael Madigan uh, was part of a orchestrated effort of, of payments to uh, among lobbyists uh, to a, a man who was... Uh, basically told to get lost by because of me too me tooism and the fact of this close allegiance between mike mclean and speaker madigan has raised some criticisms about whether the speaker is really really meant what he said about acknowledging that he was kind of late to the game and and not recognizing the problem but that you know he was working to take care of things uh are you satisfied with with what's going on here well um i share uh what i've heard from a lot of my colleagues that it's very disturbing to read about these allegations very troubling but i will say we are not sitting idly by and just watching things unfold in the past year the women in particular in the house have worked really hard to make sure our workplace is free not just from sexual harassment from but from bullying of any kind and we've taken a lot of tangible steps and we've made a lot of demands of our workplace that we haven't seen in recent years i'll just list a few examples. Um, number one, we worked closely with the office to uh, implement uh, an investigation, uh, independent investigation by Maggie Hickey, who is well known and well regarded as a very strong uh, uh, she was former inspector general, very strong voice on these issues. We then um, released the report publicly as a caucus, and I think that was a starting point to show where our issues were and make a plan to move forward. Uh, membership, and we're talking about rank-and-file membership here, also pushed for uh, a series of conversations with women working in and around the Capitol. What are your experiences? How can we do better? Because Sure, we hear about these stories in the media, but we hear a lot of stories offline, and a lot of us, even within the caucus, have had personal experiences. And we've been very moved uh, to take action and do what we can to improve our workplace. So, yes, the allegations are troubling. Like you, we're watching the investigation unfold. I have confidence that it will continue to evolve, and we'll continue to look at um, opportunities to take action as that happens. Is there a fear, though, that uh, how this reflects on the Democratic Party, since Madigan is chairman of the party? Well, sure, that there is. The speaker is chair of the party, but if you spend any time in Springfield, I think you're well aware that. This is not an, about one party. Um, we have had a few very high-profile stories in the news that are certainly of great concern, and that's why the House Democratic Caucus, uh, led by the women, have really moved forward with a lot of these um, you know, w opportunities to address some of the challenges we faced in our caucus. But certainly the issue of harassment is a capital-wide problem. I've worked in and around the Capitol for many years. Um, I've spoken to many people um, who have as well, and Unfortunately, it's something we have to address uh, in a broader way. But do you believe the speaker is committed to 
the, the Me Too movement. I've personally had numerous conversations with him about um, what we've seen and what we've heard from women in and around the Capitol, and we'll keep pressing as a caucus to continue to address issues as they arise and to make widespread structural change in our caucus and to push for that Capitol-wide. Senator Castro, are, are you running for Senate president, by the way? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Aren't uh, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought is, you know, there's there's 40 Senate Democrats and 39 candidates for Senate president due to uh, uh, President Cullerton's decision. Uh, have you made up a, a decision on this? I haven't. Um, actually, I've been speaking with a lot of my colleagues who are not running, uh, but also we have some great candidates out there. And um, we will make a selection. We will nominate a new president. Uh, we've been told to be back in Springfield on Sunday, January 19th. Yes. Uh, so there's a lot of time between now and then to have conversations and, you know, to see who's a, a bet, the best fit to lead the chamber. I, like I said, we have quite a few candidates that are great candidates out there. Did this catch you by surprise? Actually, it did. Uh, I think when... Um, He's a jokester, as you might as well. And so he brought us all into caucus uh, at the end of veto and was kind of joking. He's like, I'm, I'm retiring. He said it with a kind of a smile. And we thought he was just, you know, playing right. along because it was a long week. And he goes, no, I'm serious. I'm retiring. And the, and the whole caucus went silent. Um, it was um, it was sad. Uh, it was sad for all of us. It was uh, surreal. Um, and he said, you know, his wife, Pam Cullerton, he had promised her that once he hit 70, and he did just a, a couple weeks right. prior, that it was he was going to step, step aside and spend more time with his family and grandkids. So all kinds of things to look forward to when legislature convenes in January. State Senator Christina Castro, thank you so much for joining me. State Representative Ann Williams, always thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me for the next hour is Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. And uh, I always like to have Jason on following a debate, uh, but also in light of these public hearings, and the congressional hearings uh, on the uh, House Democratic-led uh, impeachment inquiry. And before we begin our discussion here, I wanted to play a couple of cuts from those hearings. Uh, we had the, I guess, the featured testimony was the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, Sondland, a hotelier who paid $1 million to go to Trump's administration, Trump's inauguration, ended up getting an ambassadorship. Uh, but Sondland said Trump was seeking a quid pro quo between Ukraine announcing investigations in a White House meeting with the president. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians, and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. 
we all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. So Sondland says he put two and two together to add up that the quid pro quo existed. But Republicans asked Sondland if Trump ever told him directly about any preconditions. Did the president ever tell you personally about any preconditions for anything? No. Okay, so the president never told you about any preconditions for the aid to be released? No. Uh, The president never told you about any preconditions for a White House meeting? Personally, no. So, of course, Republicans tried to make a a big point out of that. But Sondland was questioned by Democratic Congressman Sean Maloney of New York about who would benefit from an investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden and his family. And Sondland didn't really want to answer. Who would benefit from an investigation of the president's political opponent? Well, presumably that the person who asked for the investigation. Who's that? If the president asked for the investigation, it would be he. Well, it's not a hypothetical, is it, sir? We just went around this track, didn't we? The president asked you about investigations. He was talking about the Bidens. When he, when he asked you about the Biden investigation, who was he seeking to benefit? He did not ask me about the Biden investigation. When he I asked you about, about investigations, times, Mr. Sir, sir, we just went through this. When he asked you about investigations, which we all agree now means the Bidens, we just did this about 30 seconds ago. We, right? it, it's a pretty simple question, isn't it? I, I, guess, I guess I'm having trouble why you can't just say... When he asked about investigations, I assumed he meant... I know what you assume. But who research. would benefit from an investigation of the Bidens? They're two different questions. I, I, I'm just asking you one. Who would benefit from, from an investigation of the Bidens? I assume President Trump would benefit. There we have it, see? An interesting moment in uh, a long, long series of hearings. Well, because there's such a long set of hearings, Rick, I mean, Maloney doesn't really need that answer. They can make that argument, and the inference is pretty clear, but sometimes it's important in a long hearing to kind of cut through things and get right to the point. Who would have benefited by this? The president would have benefited by it. It's obvious, but let's get it on the record, and let's get a nice, tight soundbite of it that we can use going forward. And that's what he did. Um, I thought... I thought the testimony was very interesting this week. Um, I, I also thought that uh, na- former National Security Advisor uh, Fiona Hill uh, was a very compelling witness here. One of John Bolton's deputies. Yes. Yes. She was an exemplar of most of these fact witnesses who were Foreign Service professionals. She was organized, authoritative, declarative, clear and above all else, credible. And at this stage of the proceedings where they're hearing from fact witnesses, the important question is, are these witnesses credible as to the facts to which they are testifying? She was, Marie Ivanovich was, Bill Taylor was, all of these witnesses I thought were extremely credible. And that's the most important thing because if we think about what the narratives are that are running, Rick, we've got, first we've got the question of what happened. And that's all about the credibility of the witnesses. The next question is, What did it mean? What do we take from it? What's the story? What's the narrative? And the story that the Republicans on the committee are telling is that this whole process is a sham, a witch hunt. It's part of a coup. And to the extent that these witnesses come forward and seem relatively reserved, but committed, professional, that's going to 
really subvert or contradict that story. And that's what these witnesses did. And Hill was probably the best of all of them. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me here, the WGN Skyline Studio, is a good friend of the program, Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Um, the president said that he didn't know Ambassador Sondland. Sondland said they had talked about 20 times. Uh, Trump says that he told Sondland that there was no quid pro quo, but that was after the whistleblower said there were was a quid pro quo but trump says that after Solon's testimony basically these proceedings should be over i'm going to go very quickly just a quick comment on what's going on in terms of testimony with ambassador Solon. and i just noticed one thing and i would say that means it's all over what do you want from ukraine he asks me screaming what do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories. This is Ambassador Sondland speaking to me. Just happened. To which I turned off the television. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories. What do you want? What do you want? It was a very short and abrupt conversation that he had with me. They said he was not in a good mood. I'm always in a good mood. I don't know what that is. He just said, now he's talking about what my response. So he's going, what do you want? What do you want? I hear all these theories. What do you want? Right? And now here's my response that he gave. Just gave. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? I want nothing. That's what I want from Ukraine. That's what I said. I want nothing. I said it twice. So he goes, he asked me the question, what do you want? I keep hearing all these things, what do you want? He finally gets me, I don't know him very well. I have not spoken to him much. This is not a man I know well. Seems like a nice guy though. But I don't know him well. He was with other candidates. He actually supported other candidates. Not me, came in late. But here's my response. Now, if you weren't fake news, you'd cover it properly. I say to the ambassador in response, I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky, President Zelensky, to do the right thing. So here's my answer, I want nothing, I want nothing. Some extended remarks there. You know how I know that most of that was untrue? How? Because the president said he turned off the TV. The president never turns off the TV. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that call and that rendition of it by the president is is telling where we are right now because strictly speaking, I'm I'm exaggerating, you know, according to Sondland's testimony, that is what happened on the call. Mm -hmm. But it happened on the call after the campaign that had happened before that in which the president appeared to be pretty clearly pushing for something from Ukraine uh, in exchange for the military aid and the White House visit. And so now, you know, if you think about where we are going forward, you've got this counter testimony 
from Sondland, where he's kind of a problematic witness. He's he's right. saying things on both sides of it. Trump, who lives in a world of ambiguity and will always just take that world of ambiguity and gloss it to the most favorable for himself. So now the Democrats, counter to that, are trying then to simply say, okay, we really know what was going on here, and they're trying to capture that with the idea of 2 plus 2 equals 4. And to the extent that he denied that he wanted anything in response, the other hashtag was he got caught. He's saying these things now because the whistleblower's already come forward, people know all this stuff, so now he's going to just say that, no, I, I don't want anything from Ukraine. So we're kind of getting to that point of the discussion here, Rick, where nobody's questioning what the fact witnesses said. We we shouldn't forget that. Nobody's really questioning the legitimacy of what they're saying. The Republicans really aren't questioning the legitimacy of what they're saying. What they're questioning is, how do we assemble those facts, put them together, and tell a story of what's going on? The Republican story is, the whole process is a sham and a witch hunt. The Democratic case is, 2 plus 2 equals 4. We know what was going on here. And then the next phase is going to be, okay, depending on what sense we make of these facts, what is to be done about it? Impeach or not impeach? What are the legal conclusions we draw based on those sets of facts? So we're we're kind of in this next stage now that we're going to move to. Given this testimony, what story do you draw and what implication is there from that story? And that's the rhetorical battle that's going on, including on the White House lawn. Do you think the Democrats have helped themselves with public opinion? And, I, and the reason I ask that is because ostensibly that's what the public phase right. of the inquiry was about. But I asked this relative some to some interesting polling that I've seen that shows after there had been momentum for impeachment and removal from office, hovering around 50%, yep. that's kind of backtracked. I think it's unclear. Uh, I've seen the same polling. So at the beginning of the week, there was a poll from ABC News, which indicated that impeachment and removal was polling at about 51%. Later in the week, there were a couple of other polls, one from Emerson that indicated that support for impeachment had dropped maybe five points in the last month, down to the low 40s. And there was a poll out of Wisconsin that indicated that maybe impeachment support had dropped two points um, to go under 50%. I think we don't know yet because those polls were taken before the end of all the testimony Mm -hmm. last week. Ultimately, the question is, successful with whom? If we don't really know which of those polls are the right polls, the real question is going to be, what is going on in swing house districts where we have maybe Republicans who might be in some danger or Democrats who were elected in 2018 who might be in some danger? And then in the Senate, the usual suspects, Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, Susan Collins, people who are going to have to decide whether they want to cast a vote for impeachment or not. That's really what matters. And to further the point, if you ask whether or not the Democrats are being successful, it's with whom? Certainly with people who already supported impeachment, the answer is yes. I think they did a good job. I think Schiff handled the hearings well. I think he did a good job summarizing testimony and telling the story well. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I I thought some of the most compelling words were his closing arguments at the end of each day. And that's developing a narrative based on those very thick, disparate facts that he's pulling together and doing a good job of it. But on the other hand, 
I think among Republicans, support has galvanized against impeachment. So we may be right back where we started, regardless of how successful. And that's that's kind of what I'm wondering is, you know, are we back where we started? I I think that's conceivable. And now we move to the next phase, which is going to be a series of questions about what's to be done. You know, the first phase is what are the actual events? What were the phone calls? What were the meetings? That's about the credibility of the witnesses. The next stage is what narrative or story do we tell as a result, both within the hearing, but also on Fox News, on Blaze Media, at other outlets? What's the narrative about what actually happened? That's about story. So you got credibility, story. The last part, which is what is to be done, is about values. What's at stake? What do we value? as a culture what's important and the republicans are going to say no one is above the law they've tested that phrase with the public they've tested it with focus groups it works well the republicans are going to say i'm sorry you said republicans are going to say that the the democrats are going to say no one is above the law the republicans are going to say i suspect rick they're going to come out and say this is really about democracy and we're within a year of an election so we should let the american people decide what's appropriate And if that sounds familiar, I think it's the same argument that they used with respect to the Merrick Garland nomination when Obama nominated Garland within a year of the 2016 election. And the the Republicans said, you know, we really should let people decide this because we're in a democracy. I think they're going to recycle that argument, frame that as the value that's at stake and put it up against the Democrats argument that no one is above the law. And then we're going to have that argument in the Senate about whether this is appropriate for actual. I I think he will be impeached. But then the question of whether or not there will be a conviction. Well, and I think the Republican argument, the other bookend to let the public decide in 2020 is also you're taking away the vote of 2016. Yeah, that's part of the larger. I mean, yes, in that, that Republican rubric of let the people decide. Right. Right. And to the extent that there is a a coup or a countering of what happened in 2016, this is just a part of that continuing conspiracy that has been going on since 2016. And the Ukrainians are a part of it. uh, And and they were you know, they were part of it in 2016. And now they're going to be a part of it again in 2020. And and on and on it goes Uh, on and on it goes. Uh, And I mean, so I I was trying to uh, watch Rudy Giuliani on uh, Fox News uh, yesterday, and uh, spinning out—I uh, mean, all of this stuff about Ukrainian involvement in 2016, which intelligence community had said it basically is saying that's Russia trying to pin Ukraine as the source for involvement in the election, not Russia itself. Right, and that was that—that that was the crux of. Part of Fiona Hill's testimony was that when you parrot that claim that the Ukrainians were involved, you are parroting Russian propaganda. That's what you're doing. You are doing the work of Putin when you tell that story. And also, there's there's never been a ton of consistency about the claim of what the Ukrainians actually did. One version of the story is that they were the ones that actually hacked the Democratic server. Another version of the story is that they were the ones that were working against the Republicans, not against the Democrats. So there's kind of this, uh, the Ukrainians 2016 crowd strike, kind of these, these quick little blurbs. But those conspiracies mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on which conspiracy theorist you're, you're listening to. Uh, so 
it, it has become more of a buzzword and a way to capture people. And it, it, Rick, it is working with certain audiences. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of shares of these stories on Facebook, on these media sites like Breitbart and Blaze Media. And so to that extent, it's it's working. I think what the Democrats are trying to hold out some hope for, I talked about the ABC News poll a minute ago, there were 51% of the people, at least at the end of last week, who thought that impeachment and removal was a good idea. There were 70%. 19% more, who thought that what the president did was wrong. But they weren't willing to say that impeachment and removal were appropriate. And I think that puts a fine point on the question of how effective is the story that's being told going forward and the argument about what is endangered and what should be done about it. And that's the work that Democrats have to try to do. They have to try to capture, I think, somewhere in that 20%, the people who are willing to say, not only is it wrong, but we're going to remove him from office for it. And the Republicans are going to say, you have an election coming up in 2020. Let people decide then. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. Now the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the WGN Skyline studio with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Uh, one of the great things I like about Jason is uh, an expert at rhetoric. Is that <laughs> is that a fair way to put it? I'm interested in it, Rick. It's it's up to you to decide. Well, I'd say expert at rhetoric, and and as part of that expertise. Jason is offering up to us, as a special for this holiday week, an ode to Thanksgiving. Thank you, Rick. Well, Thanksgiving's upon us, and all across Chicago and the country, families are struggling with whether they should discuss politics at their gatherings this year. But I'm grateful, thankful, one might say, that one issue my family won't have to address is the most crucial political mystery in the history of the United States— because this week we got an answer to that centuries-old question of American political theory, the one that Madison and Lincoln could never answer. What happens when a rich, bald hotel magnate buys an ambassadorship for a million bucks, is accused of being a rogue agent, and then testifies about the impeachment of a reality TV star who declared four bankruptcies, divorced two wives, and descended one escalator before becoming president? I'll tell you what happens. That hotel owner shows up and has the time of his life, smirking, laughing, and implicating more people than Sammy the Bull Gravano. On Wednesday, Gordon Sondland arrived in the Capitol at 9 a.m., and six hours later, he had pointed the finger at the President, Secretary of State Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney, and Rudy Giuliani. All the while, he seemed like a man unburdened. And why not? Telling the truth is empowering. Getting revenge is empowering. But getting revenge by telling the truth forget about it and just like that the ambassador was on a plane back to brussels and what sprouted as a result well the president having once called the ambassador a great american continued to know him less by the minute at this rate by next week trump will insist that the only sound land he knows is the one he tried to buy from denmark even so trump declared the testimony a great victory for his cause but he was less happy the next day after career diplomats seemed to undermine the president's story in fact, Trump was so upset that he went on Fox News to rail against the entire impeachment effort. It got uncomfortable, though, even for the Fox Morning hosts who gently tried to end the interview. That can't be good. When the Fox and Friends couch is tired of you, it may be time to dial your therapist and spend some time on his. So no, 
We, Rick, won't be discussing this issue on Thursday because some of us at the table may see Sondland's testimony as damaging for the president. Others, like the president, may see it as exonerating. And a few may just like cranberries. So rather than having a divisive Thanksgiving, we'll focus on what unites us, that with the holidays now before us, we can all agree that it's time to come together, pitch in, and buy Jim Jordan a sport coat. I'm Jason DeSanto. Thank you, Rick. Ah, <laughs> uh, Brussels and sprouting. That was very, very well done. Oh, sure. Yes, and, to turn a phrase. And yes, Jim Jordan does need a sport coat. He's folksy. Uh, I, I guess, I guess. And, and a late addition to the Intelligence Committee, by the way. Um, an hope, a, hope an spring, add-on. Hope Springs Eternal. An add-on. Um, I wanted to shift from the uh house hearings shifty shift to yes to uh to to the debate uh and the, you know the debate in atlanta uh, and jason has provided strategy for democrats in the past but i, I wanted to i want to play some highlights from it and then then we'll get your reaction to it so this is a compilation uh, from the New York Times of uh, highlights from the 10 candidates, and we start with uh, Kamala Harris. First of all, we have a criminal living in the White House. The president felt free to break the law again and again and again, and that's what's happened with Ukraine. By the way, I learned something about these impeachment trials. I learned, number one, that Donald Trump doesn't want me to be the nominee. We cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump, because if we are, you know what? We're going to lose the election. Uh, black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. At some point, folks get tired of just saying, oh, you know, thank me for showing up and, want, and, and say, well, show up for me. I care about this because while I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country. Turning on the news and seeing my own rights come up for debate. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is... That's not true. The other that's one is true. here. Come on. First, <laughs> so my point is... I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and it's unfortunate that we have someone on the stage who spent four years full-time on Fox News criticizing President Obama. Yes, what Senator Harris is doing is unfortunately continuing to traffic in lies and smears and innuendos. I think that Pete is qualified to be up on this stage and I am honored to be standing next to him. But what I said was true. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called Name Your Favorite Woman President. Is heard. But I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg and his comment about experience. I think experience should matter. If your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. Um... Interesting debate, but I'm not sure, one, the, the ratings are down. Uh, this is debate number five, yes, I believe. Yes, that was five. Um, 
and I just wonder if you have the number of debates, the number of candidates, plus the impeachment issue, the oxygen is kind of going out of this thing. And the energy seemed lower at the debate. Yes. I don't know that the candidates had less energy, but the the sense of import of it seemed reduced. That will change in January when we get closer to the Iowa caucuses. When we start getting into the middle of January, people will understand the stakes are a little bit higher, both on the stage and also watching. I don't think this particular debate moved the needle much on the polling. I do think that people did pretty well, by and large, in the debate. In the past, we could talk about people who had absolutely atrocious nights and people who had excellent nights. And I think here they were bunched a little more closely. I would rank it in tiers, actually, rather than in here's who won and here's who lost. Mm -hmm. I think it's much more of a continuum for that debate that we saw this week. Well, and and I thought, I'm not sure Biden did well. And, and and I say that because here was an opportunity, frankly, where everybody was looking at it's uh, Pete Buttigieg is going to be getting the attacks. Right. And this kind of would allow Biden to find a lane kind of to stay in. And I'm, not, I'm just not sure that, you know, he hit the mark. He's not seizing the debates to cement his status as the person who should be going up against Trump. But we have talked about on this show before that there is a certain muddling along that he is able to accomplish in these encounters that seems to work fine enough for him. That his hardcore supporters don't leave him because they say they understand him and no 90-minute or hour-long debate performance is going to change that. And I suspect, despite having a few embarrassing statements toward the second half of this debate that will be true again so if the question is did joe biden cement his status as the challenger to donald trump the answer to that is no but if the question is did joe biden do enough to keep bouncing along the answer is yes we're speaking with jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the northwestern pritzker school of law i'm rick pearson this is the sunday spin Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the WGN Skyline Studio with Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. We were talking about uh, the uh, presidential debate. Um, have a text here about from someone. As a moderate Republican voter, Joe Biden is a reset candidate. Um, the rest of the Democrats are too left. Um, but with Biden, you can reset things and then look ahead to 2024. It's not the first time that I've heard that from Republicans. Um, that that's And that's certainly the framing of the Biden candidacy, both to Democrats to say, I'm electable, and also to begin setting the table for a competition next fall against Trump. So I, I think that that kind of a response is exactly the kind of response that Joe Biden and the people behind his candidacy would say is evidence of his ability to win and the kind of statement that he would actually take to Democrats, not the Democrats who are on Twitter, who tend to be more left-wing, but the Democratic Party that knows Joe Biden and say, see, this is the currency that my candidacy would have. So it's it's a powerful statement if it continues to be followed, not only by Republicans uh, next fall, but also for him to be able to take the Democrats and say, this is why I'm the best candidate, because I can actually win. Do you think we're seeing a plateauing of uh, Elizabeth Warren? 
a, a natural plateauing. She got a lot of pushback against Medicare for all. She went back and refined it in a way that risks losing some progressive support, but in a way that also gives her the ability in these debates and going forward to say this is a graduated approach to what I've always said is the goal. Now, in some ways, that brings her a lot closer to somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who said the same thing. He's got a graduated approach to the goal. Amy Klobuchar would say the same thing. Biden would say the same thing. So rhetorically, they'll end up in the same place, but Warren is trying to count on her progressive propers to still be able to make the argument that I'm the one who really believes in it. You know, these other people here are saying they want to get there, but they're not willing to fight for it. So her plateauing, I think, is kind of a natural result, also because, honestly, Bernie Sanders has been a better candidate since his heart condition. He's been more human, he's connected better with people, and he's still got all that conviction and passion that people associate with Sanders. So I think it was kind of natural that she would hit that level, and now we get to the point where glide path to the caucuses, and we'll see what happens from here, particularly with organizing in these early states, which is crucial. Uh, Mayor Pete uh, thought, even though, yes, he was subjected to some uh, attacks, uh, nothing... Nothing that uh, was extraordinary. Both Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris had opportunities to draw much sharper attacks on him, and they did not. They both actually were very deft, I think, in the way that they handled what could have been a much more pointed exchange, but they still made very good points. And I thought Harris and Booker probably had to me, and if I were to rank a top tier from the other night, they would be in that top tier. And the next tier would contain Buttigieg and Warren and Bernie and Yang and also Klobuchar. But it's true, they didn't really draw those kind of contrasts. And whenever there was a contrast run, I thought that the mayor was good in response. He had the right combination of personality and also substantively responding. And when he had the back and forth with Tulsi Gabbard, that was an opportunity to be a little tougher, as Harris was against against Gabbard. And Which is something people have been waiting for, quite frankly, is uh, Gabbard to be criticized by uh, Kamala Harris. Yeah, and I thought that Harris, that, that that's low-hanging fruit for a Democrat. I mean, if you can say, hey, here's somebody on the stage with us who spent four years on Fox News or eight years on Fox News and was cri- uh, criticizing Barack Obama – You know, for a Democrat in a Democratic debate speaking to a Democratic audience, the ability to take somebody like that on, that's the low-hanging fruit you harvest. And Harris did it effectively, much more effectively than she's been in the past few debates. And in the one-on-one with Buttigieg, ordinarily, you would say it would be challenging sometimes for a male candidate to get into a back-and-forth with a female candidate. You'd worry a little bit about gender dynamics. But Gabbard is essentially reviled by most of the Democratic Party that's watching. I mean, she has a core constituency, but most of the Democrats watching don't like her. So to the extent that uh, you're able to draw a contrast with her, you're not going to hurt yourself as a Democratic candidate. And I thought he did it well, but I thought Harris did it particularly well. Uh, Tom Steyer. I thought Tom Steyer did himself some good in this debate. I thought he owned the climate issue, which is what he wants to stake his candidacy on, particularly the Jay Inslee, since he's gone out and he wanted to stake his candidacy on it. I thought Steyer did well for himself. I thought he had passion. I thought he spoke eloquently about why this should be the first priority. He needed more details, I felt, particularly introducing himself to people on what he was going to do. I mean, as audiences, we respond to somebody's passion, but also their plans. And 
Steyer needed to back up what he was saying with what he would do. Right. The other person who did well in that climate debate was Bernie Sanders, who sort of interposed himself and then brought it back to his general issues about corruption and about the kind of country we're going to forge and was able, again, because I thought he had a good night too, to own that issue in a way that um, the other candidates didn't. So I thought he and Steyer were the best on that on that particular issue. So, of course, we still have, you know, 10 candidates on the stage. And just when you thought the field was being winnowed, you end up with Mike Bloomberg jumping in and uh, Deval Patrick, mm-hmm. which, and I, I thought one of the most interesting uh, debate-related stories in Atlanta uh, was the night of the debate. Deval Patrick was supposed to have a rally at uh, Moorhead College uh, and canceled it when uh, two people showed up. Does that say something? It says those two people have to make different plans. <laughs> I think. That, <laughs> well, but I mean... Not good advance work is what it says. And the photo, there was a photo that went around on Twitter as well, certainly doesn't look good for a candidacy. But if you're Deval Patrick or people with Deval Patrick, you're going to say, you know what, it's nothing but up from here. And someday we're going to look back at this as the place where we began. The ultimate question for him is, is it too late? That's really the question. He is somebody who has a relatively, by Democratic standards, moderate record but also some more progressive credentials as well. So the theory is he can speak to both ends of the party, that he's somebody soft-spoken and can be a unifier, but he's also somebody who can give a pretty good stem winder of a speech. So again, kind of is able to do both things well. But at this point, the question is, where does he compete? And so one theory is he can he can make a dent, if not do better in New Hampshire, because he was the governor of Massachusetts. He ran media that hit New Hampshire for many years, and so they know him there, and then maybe he can use that to compete in in um, South Carolina as well. There's a larger African-American population. I think it's just a question of time, if he has time to do that. For Bloomberg, it's about money. Sure. He's got a lot of it. That doesn't come as news to anybody, and, and he's parent, willing to spend it. He's spending it, it on TV ad time right now. Which will include here in Chicago. He's purchased time, which, and of course, we have our our. Preference primaries March seventeenth. Correct, and at least one. You know, as one theory goes, you would have Buttigieg who would win in Iowa. You have Warren who could win in New Hampshire. You have Biden who could win in South Carolina, and you have Sanders, heavy union support, who could win in Nevada. At least under that theory, you could have four different people winning those first four primaries or caucuses, and then somebody like Bloomberg says, okay, now the real game begins. We get to Super Tuesday, and I'm just going to put all the money on the line in order to do well there. But he's got his own issues to overcome. Absolutely. Policing issues in New York. I mean, that's, that's anathema. In the, in the Democratic Party. So he, he will have his work cut out for him. A lot to stay, stay tuned for. Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. As always, much appreciated. Rick, thanks for having me.